Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. I live on the west coast of Florida almost directly across the state from the Kennedy Space Center. And it seems like right now that it's almost every day <laughs> where something is being launched and I'm able to peek out my window and find that little dot of light or trail of smoke moving um, through the sky and, you know, and knowing that something is coming back to Earth that was reusable as part of it as well. Um, I think we're, we're very close to that happening on a, an even more regular basis. And what I think is interesting about that too is that's that's going to make the accessibility of getting to space available for more and more people and it's becoming real to people and and hopefully beyond that technical side of it people are going to learn more and more about the the true value of why we lift ourselves off this planet anyway. Welcome back to Where's my jetpack? Back in the 1960s, we were promised everything from jetpacks to flying cars and holidays in space. But here we are in the 21st century with not a jetpack in sight. So what happened to those space age dreams? I'm Sarah Crudis. And I'm Luke Moore. And each episode will be taking you on a mission to find out by exploring a different futuristic promise that never was to find out if it was all just science fiction or if these great inventions are either just around the corner or lurking in some unexpected places. This is episode six, Where's My Reusable Rocket? So reusable rockets, I have got my SpaceX Starship sweatshirt on. It's quite warm in the studio. I am yeah. sweating in it just so I can wear it for this episode. This, this is my passion. This is something which really excites me, but I understand it's something which not everyone might understand just yet. Yeah, so this is a completely different type of episode for me because normally we sit in here, we, I get really excited looking into things like flying cars or, um, you know, hoverboards or whatever it may be or going to the Mars or whatever. And But with this one, it's apparently really important and it's clearly crucial to to future space flight and travel and exploration but as I'm not a scientist, and as I think many people listening at home will testify to, I'm not entirely sure why it's so important and why it's something that we have to really focus on. Uh, so it's going to be exciting to find out more about it. Yeah, if we are to succeed as a species in mm. doing anything beyond Earth, and, and bearing in mind 90% of what we do in space is actually about improving life on Earth, mm. we need to crack this problem of how to get to space. And it's mm. hugely expensive to get to space. And then we just throw away much of the vehicle that we use to get to space. So if we can crack this, if we can make space more accessible, more affordable, be, you know, gravity, so to speak, mm. and that, that cost of escaping Earth's gravity world and getting into orbit around Earth or, or further into our solar system, we need reusable rocket technology. So it has the potential to transform space exploration as well as life on Earth. And, and much as in the same way in the 1990s, the internet was accessible to anyone with an idea because it was free to access. 
if we can make getting to space really, really inexpensive, which reusable rockets will one day potentially maybe do, that means more people with more ideas can create companies which will change the world and create a future that we can't imagine yet, just as in the same way in the 90s, you couldn't imagine Google or Facebook or Amazon and these big companies which will benefit people, help to connect the world, help to educate people, will come from reusable rockets as well as all the great stuff in space. So this this fits into the Where's My Jetpack style because we, growing up and back in the day, we thought about people going back and forth to space all the time, but that hasn't quite happened yet and the reusable rocket is a big part of that. Is that what you're saying? That is what I'm saying. So let's first of all take a look at the history of trying to make space travel reusable. Five, four, three, two, one. Science fiction made it seem so easy. Thunderbirds are go. But in reality, getting to space was a lot harder. There were a number of failures during the year, and the United States promptly announced them. The first and most spectacular of these was Vanguard at the end of 1957. There were other Vanguard failures, all achieved takeoff, but trouble occurred either in the second or third stages. And once we managed to get there, the rockets that were used were simply discarded. Even the spacecraft that housed the astronauts were single-use. Then, in the 1980s, came the Space Shuttle program and our first attempt to make spacecraft reusable. Just arcing straight up into the sky. What an unbelievable sight. I didn't think anything could match an Apollo. Roger. The most complex machine ever built, the Space Shuttle was designed so that its boosters and the orbiter could be used over and over again. It was so promising that the Russians even had a suspiciously similar version of their own, called the Buran. There had been some concern that the flight would be delayed by bad weather. Last month, the Soviets aborted their first attempt to launch the shuttle with only 51 seconds left in the countdown. But tonight, the world's most powerful booster rocket sent Buran on its way. But the Buran only flew to space once, and that was without crew. And though the space shuttle carried more astronauts to orbit than any other vehicle, it didn't deliver on its promise to fly frequently and instead became hugely expensive, costing nearly half a billion dollars per mission. In 2011, after 30 years of service, the space shuttle was retired. After uh, serving the world for over 30 years, the space shuttle turned its place in history and it's come to a final stop. And NASA astronauts were left to fly into space with the Russians using rocket technology that dated back to the 1960s. Lift off. Lift off of the Soyuz TMA-05M carrying Sonny Williams, Yuri Milenchenko and Aki Hoshide on a two-day journey to the International Space Station. All of their launcher parameters are nominal. So I was actually there in 2011 for the final ever space shuttle launch and landing. And I don't know if you've ever been to the space coast of Florida. I have. Have you? Yeah. um, That area, Cocoa Beach, Mm -hmm. um, it was bustling during the 1960s up until 2011 when the space shuttle landed for the final Mm. time and it declined and so many people lost their jobs and it was quite depressing for me it was an incredible personal moment to be literally sat in a ditch and reporting you know because that was the only place I could get a satellite signal next to the runway as the shuttle touched down for the final time I can still see it now it was Mm. dark it was incredible but then that area kind of declined I went to a a 
a party that evening with the shuttle in the background, which had just come from space, mm. and people were losing their jobs. Mm. And so much hope and so much promise from that reusable space vehicle disappeared mm. when the space shuttle retired back in 2011. And, and now what you're seeing 10 years later is many more companies moving back to that area, moving back to the space coast mm. in Florida. And after that lull, after that depression of kind of losing this reusable space vehicle, we're kind of getting it back. So why weren't these kind of reusable things developed as part of the thinking from the very start? Is it because when the space race first starts in the kind of 50s, going through the 60s and culminating with Apollo 11 in 69 or whatever, and I don't know, a few people went to the moon after that, but that, that space race era, is that because there were people developing it were so desperate just to get up there that they weren't thinking longer term or reusability or sustainability or anything like that. It was just a case of, can we get there? Well, it's really complicated because rocket science is not easy. You know, they don't call it rocket science uh, for any other reason. It's hugely complicated. So, of course, it it was a war for all intents and purposes. Space, during the space race, um, was as much about politics as it was actually about exploration. So people were just trying to get there. It's why we left a load of junk. Get there quickest, basically. Yep, get there quickest. Um, Secondly is it wasn't really financially viable to have reusable rockets because you'd have to invest more in the technology. Weight is so important. And the more weight you have, Mm -hmm. you're then going to need to say it's something which is reusable. You're going to have more parts to it. So then you need more fuel to lift that. And then you need more fuel to lift that fuel. So it gets really complicated. So it it was more efficient to actually have single-use rockets just because of cost, just because of competition. But at the same time, there was actually a project in the 1960s called Project Dinosaur, And this was almost like a plane. It kind of looked like the space shuttle. It had wings. And people were looking at the feasibility of having a reusable vehicle. And that actually morphed in to what became the space shuttle, something which was given the okay in the 1970s after humans finished, you know, Apollo 17, the last mission to the moon, still to this day, the last mission to the moon. After that, we looked at reusable space technology. And then, you know, the Boran, as I mentioned then in that package, the Russians had a suspiciously almost identical version, which yeah. I actually got to see in Kazakhstan, which is basically a twin. Although some have said it was it was slightly better than the American version, right. probably because they copied it and improved it. It's certainly in like the, the fact that it didn't need why a pilot use, to fly. Why wasn't it used more often then? Well, the Boran was only ever used once yeah. um, and they just did a, a flight and then I think it was two with money. The space shuttle, it, it was used a lot to begin with, um, but it was flawed. You know, you had the Challenger accident in 1986. Yeah. That was in the January of 1986 and it already was the second space flight of that year. So they really were planning, I think the, the previous year they'd had flown nine space shuttles in one year. So space was becoming reusable. It was becoming something which more and more people could access. January 1986, a politician had gone up um, in that January, and then Chris McAuliffe, the teacher, was on board that fateful Challenger flight. Yeah. After that happened, it, it made people realise that actually it wasn't like getting on an aeroplane. Yeah. It wasn't as safe, and, and it wasn't as simple, the technology. The Space Shuttle is the most complex piece of machinery ever built. So mm. it, it wasn't fit for purpose in the sense it had to be tested a lot more. And then, of course, you had the Columbia disaster in the early 2000s, 2003, and that was kind of like the, the final nail in the coffin, so to speak, for reusable space shuttles. But it also needed a big booster to go up on the back of, right? Which yeah. was Which wasn't reusable. So you right? could reuse parts of it. You could okay. reuse the orbiter and then you could reuse the booster as well. Mm. Um, 
it even sounds complex explaining it, yeah. which, which is one of the reasons why it, it didn't work. And I think the best person to talk to about this it, or to hear more about this from is a, a woman called Nicole Stott, right. who is an artist, but she's also, more importantly, um, well, I'd say she's an artist first, actually, but she's an astronaut. And, and she flew on the space shuttle numerous times, and she explains the complexity of this vehicle. When you look at the space shuttle, uh, especially the you know, the orbiter, the, the flying part, where the people were, and, you know, this vehicle that just so beautifully landed on a runway coming home. Um, there, there's complexity in that. There's complexity in the fact that the way it was designed was to solve the problems of everyone. It was to be the spaceship for everyone, the cargo, the, the orbiting laboratory, the people transporter, the docker to space stations, the builder of space stations, the deployer of sa satellites. It was, it was really designed and built to do all of that and then to land on that runway coming home. Whereas the, the spacecraft that we're looking at now really are designed for a particular purpose. You know, you look at you know, the capsules that we have coming along, the, you know, whether it's SpaceX Dragon, the Boeing um, vehicle, even NASA looking at um, the spacecraft that are going to take us back to the moon and onto Mars, they're, they're being built in a very particular purpose way. Like, we're going to use this spacecraft to transport the people. We're going to use this spacecraft to transport the cargo. And then we're going to have to augment that in ways to do laboratory stuff and deployment kinds of things. And so uh, in reality, I think it's it's a level of complexity. So that kind of goes back to what we were talking about in the flying car episode in the sense that it's really complicated when yeah. you're trying to build something to do mul multiple things, yeah. as we saw with the space shuttle. Whereas even if you look back to the Soyuz, which is what the Russians have used since the 1960s to send human beings and payloads to space, it's incredibly simple technology and it does one job. And and now what we're starting to see uh, as we see re reusability, certainly developing in rocket parts, is that spacecraft are designed for one purpose, whereas a space shuttle was meant to be more like an aeroplane, which could actually go to space. So in summary, then, it's been a case of the very start of the space race. It was all about just getting up as quickly as possible. Yep. Then and cheaply as possible. And, yeah. And then throughout the 70s and the 80s, moving into the 90s and beyond, it was more about making as much of it reusable as possible. But then for different reasons, that was kind of defunded and the project kind of dropped off. And now again, with the advent of all these um, private individuals and different commercial entities, we're starting to see it become a much more, much more reusability-focused project. Yeah, the Space Shuttle was a great idea, but it was almost before its time in some right. way. It didn't... It, it looked cool, by yeah, the way. Yeah, it, it looked really amazing. Cool. And I'm, I'm to see a Space Shuttle launch is, is indescribable. It's literally like watching a firework go off a matter of miles away. I was at the press site when I watched that launch and and to think there's human beings on that. And it's so flimsy when yeah. you see it up close and it's right. got these tiles on it and it almost looks like a quilt, so to speak, the, right. the heat shields. And it, it's just an incredible feat of engineering, but it was slightly ahead of its time and it didn't quite work. But now what we're seeing is a resurgence and an excitement about space yeah. exploration that we haven't seen since the 1960s. It seems to be happening all the time yeah, now. Yeah, it really yeah. does. And that's thanks to reusable rockets. So right. let's see what's happening right now. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. 
Today, science fiction is becoming science fact. That's our Dragon spacecraft uh, or version one, which is capable of taking cargo to and from the space station, including uh, bi biological cargo like you know, fish and mice and that kind of thing. Though it did take many, many unsuccessful attempts to get there. As you can see from the uh, scene, we had again another great flight up to the 10 kilometer apogee. We demonstrated the ability to transition the engines to the landing propellant tanks. The subsonic re-entry looked very good and stable like we saw again last December, so we've got a lot of good data on flap control. And again, we've just got to work on that landing a little bit. Private space companies such as SpaceX and Blue Origin are now able to launch a spacecraft and then land the used rocket booster back on Earth. Even the capsules that carry astronauts and supplies can be used again and again. Three, two, one, release, release, release. While space tourism company Virgin Galactic uses a reusable rocket-powered space plane for its passenger flights. Known as Spaceship Two, it can be continually reused to take passengers to the edge of space. fully deployed, point Charlie complete. Reusable rockets are becoming parts of our today. So cool. Yep. I mean, this is something which is almost like that Thunderbirds science fiction. So at the moment, SpaceX and Blue Origin, if you're going to be really pedantic about this, and I have got my SpaceX sweatshirt on, but it was actually Blue Origin <laughs> yeah. who managed to land, I think, a month sooner, at what's known as the first stage. That's the bottom part of the rocket. They yeah. managed to land it just before SpaceX, although SpaceX would argue their rockets, their spacecraft go to orbit, whereas Blue Origin at the moment does something called suborbital, so it goes up and down. But to launch a rocket and then to have separation of the first stage from the payload or the second stage, if it's a two-stage rocket, and then to control that using thrusters to flip it round and then slow its descent to mm. land on a target on the ground, either back near the launch pad or on a, a mm. moving uh, barge in the ocean, it is something people didn't even believe companies such yeah. as SpaceX could do. It took best part of two decades to achieve it and now it's happening so is that the main challenge to developing a reusable rocket then because as far as i'm aware back in the past when the initial thrust to get off the ground a lot of the thrusters and the boosters don't actually go anywhere near space they peel off yep. right you're talking about going all the way up being able to survive in space essentially in orbit and then come back down through with all the associated friction and the heat that comes with coming back down and surviving and, and landing again on the target, like you say, they're the main challenges. Well, aren't they, they don't. They don't actually go to orbit, so the booster's discarded before the spacecraft. But it comes back down and can be used again. Yeah. So it, cool. Imagine it launching, uh, and then it gets to a certain height, mm -hmm. and then you because you need to get the, the first stage, the bottom of a rocket, is used to get you mm. above much of the air because that's where the most friction is. Mm. So you need the most force for that part, mm -hmm. and then it's redundant. It's empty, so you yeah. then throw it away. And in the past, it would just land in the ocean, mm. which isn't. Great for that. many reasons. Yeah. But now, both SpaceX and Blue Origin, they've developed ways to to land it on a barge, you know, size of a couple of football fields in an ocean or, or on a target back on the ground. Mm. And then they can reuse them again. So SpaceX are now flying crew and flying payloads with first stages that have been reused. And the idea is that eventually the second stage will be reused as well. And then the capsules are reusable. And instead of throwing a rocket away, we can use it again. And this is something even astronauts such as Nicole Stott find almost science fiction like it's it's a little sci-fi isn't it i mean it gets like this this sci-fi feel to it 
that we're flying these pieces of a, of a, of a spacecraft back to Earth to use again. And that's just something very different to what we did with shuttle where we landed the, the orbiter on a runway and the boosters, you know, were recovered from the ocean. Uh, but, but landing those, um, those stages the way they do, it's just, it's kind of bringing this um, sci-fi to sci-fact reality that I think we're all looking for. Yeah, I agree. And I think it looks, it does look amazing. It looks so futuristic to see it come back down and land in that spot. And, and you know, it's quite interesting that private companies are leading the charge here, I suppose, because they're, you know, repeated use makes it cheaper. During the space race, it was basically a blank check from NASA, right, to try and get there ahead of it. It, it was less so, I, I would say, actually, because um, private companies can take risks that governments can't. So during the space race, it was almost like get there at any cost. And then mm. we suddenly had to be more conservative. Yeah. With budget, it's um, but they they can take risks. They can do this almost like the Silicon Valley mentality: yeah. of fail fast and often. And also, let's be honest: an intern who works at SpaceX is going to be working eighty to ninety hours a week. This is a way of life. This is people are dedicating their life to this, and it, and it sounds like a dry topic: reusable rockets. But if we want to become a multi-planetary species, it's the basis, yeah, right? we yeah. need to improve the way we get there because that enables all this amazing stuff which we haven't dreamed up of yet to actually happen. So this is the thing we need to get right in order to succeed in exploring and staying in space beyond Earth. You know, if, if you ever want to go to space, if anyone no, listening... No, thank you. No, no but if you did, <laughs> it's, it's only going to be possible because if we crack this technology, we are... It, it's easy to take space exploration for granted because we've done so much, but mm. actually we've done so little. You know, I, I think with the number of people who've gone to space recently, mm. we're now at the 600 mark in terms of right. humans that have been okay. to space. 100 billion humans have existed in the entire history of our species only 600 are gone. But if we crack this, mm. you could go, I could go, any of you listening could go. It, it really changes who can access space who can access space, and the ideas and the science that can access space to benefit life on Earth. So reusable rockets then are basically here and they're going to get better and better as we use them more? They are and they aren't. There are A prototype of the, them at least. They, yeah, they, they are here in a sense, but um, another person who's a huge expert in this field is Livingston Holder. He's a former US Air Force Academy astronaut and, and he says there's still some difficulties to overcome. Rockets are not reusable at the moment because it's so difficult to get to space that we can't get there without throwing the parts away. Uh, so when you... When you um, look at a rocket, you see that it's always got multiple stages. Stage one fires, and then it separates, and stage two fires. Historically, stage one has got so much velocity and is so far away from, a, from the launch site that there's no place for it to land. We also historically launch over water, because if a rocket has a problem and we decide to terminate its flight, it blows up or, it, or, or lands in the water safely away from populated areas. So when we have this rocket with lots of velocity over the ocean, um, it's really hard to get that rocket back to the launch site. And that's why you see SpaceX putting drones out to sea because it can catch the rocket uh, you know, uh, without having to come all the way back. Or they have some missions where they keep enough propellant in the tanks, not just to get the rocket uh, up, but also to get the rocket back. When you, when you roll the clock back in time, it was so difficult just to get to orbit. We did not have any spare propellant to, to, to burn to get us back down to the ground or even on a, on a, on a, on a platform in the ocean. 
So we just were on the edge of technical capability to get to orbit. So there was no way to get the stuff back. So we're kind of really, we're on the cusp of it. SpaceX, Blue Origin, mm-hmm. which is called Jeff Bezos's space company. It's, they're the disruptors. They're the ones. And I saw the SpaceX Falcon Heavy launch back mm-hmm. in 2018. And you saw two of these um, rocket stages coming back to land. And it was it was almost more incredible than the launch. And it is, I don't know whether I'm selling you yet on, no, on cool. why, yeah, why they're so exciting. But if... If we want to succeed as a species by exploring space, then we need to crack this problem. Although we've had some successes, there's still a long way to go, and it is a huge feat of engineering. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Reusable rockets are here to stay. But some, like Elon Musk, have bigger and bolder ambitions for the technology. The, 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 I mean, the long-term aspiration is to develop the technologies necessary to transport a large number of people and cargo to, to Mars. His company SpaceX are currently testing a giant reusable rocket called Starship, which will one day take humans to Mars. So the first order of business is to figure out how to, how to get there. And it needs to be in a way that enables large numbers of people and cargo. It can't just be like a handful of people, because that's obviously not going to create a self-sustaining civilization. While for others, the goal for the technology is to reduce the cost of access to space by up to 90%. So he kind of compared what he's trying to do with space with what the internet did for Amazon. He wants this low price of emission. Why does this matter? Because getting to space is hugely expensive. So if we can reduce the cost, that means more people and more ideas can access space. So he's trying to develop these reusable rockets that Blue Origin are sending up and bringing down. He's currently spending a billion dollars a year on this. But it seemed like the sky was kind of the limit for a future spend. With this comes the potential to change our lives in ways we cannot yet imagine. While it might sound like science fiction, it is reusable rocket technology which will be our first step towards one day becoming a multi-planetary species. Spreading out may be the only thing that saves us from ourselves. I am convinced that humans need to leave Earth. I feel like I like to use that term multi-planetary species quite a lot. I yeah, mean, it sounds exciting though. It sounds exciting. It mm. sounds like something that's not real, but this is what people are working towards at the moment. And this is why I love space so much, because we're going to see 
so much disruption, so much change in the next few decades because of reusable rocket technology. And it's something that science fiction, certainly the Thunderbirds had um, and other science fiction movies, it's something they dreamed up of. But if we're going to see human beings on Mars, if we're going to see a sustainable lunar presence, if we're going to go further into space, we need to crack this technology. We can't keep throwing away our rockets uh, like we do right now. And so people will have seen, listeners to this show would have seen lots and lots of news stories, lots and lots of updates around, you know, several this year alone, um, things going up and down, lots of different rival commercial space companies getting this stuff cracked. And some of the stuff that Elon Musk talked about, the Starship project in that little package there. I mean, if you look that up, it looks amazing. It looks like proper science fiction. You know, I can see why you're wearing the jumper because it's a cool thing. (laughs) What time frames are we talking about here where we can really reap the benefits and see this and we start seeing almost like a conveyor belt of things going up and down to space all the time? Well, there's been a huge amount of launches um, in 2021. You certainly look at July, August, September, we've had... um, Branson going to space or on Virgin Galactic, which is this reusable space plane, which is launched from the air. So it's taken to a certain height from its its mothership and then it's dropped. Then it fires its engines to so above much of the air and then it goes to space and can be reused again. Then we've had the Blue Origin flights um, taking passengers to space. And then we've had SpaceX taking the Inspiration4 crew to space. And we're seeing more and more people going to space because of this reusable technology. But then Starship... I don't know whether you've seen any of the videos, but basically it explodes Right. every time they try and land it. So it's this giant, and, and that's just the, the, the silvery thing you see. So it's a silver spaceship type thing. It looks like it's been hammered together. Um, it's about 20 or 30 metres high. It launches uh, and then they try and land it again. And I think they've managed to land it at the time of recording at least once now. Oh, but when it's finally on its big rocket, it will be ginormous uh, and yeah. it, you know it sounds over optimistic within the next few years they hope to be flying people aboard it which is crazy to think it, it's blowing up most of the time they try and land it at the moment and then you know that's going to disrupt things because it'll mean taking payloads eventually astronauts to orbit then to the moon and then onward to mars because elon musk he's got this crazy you know some would say crazy ambition to um go to mars he says he wants yeah. to die on mars but it's a ship like this it's reusable rocket technology that he believes is the only thing which will enable humans to get to Mars. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also it helps to give a bit more further context to the cost involved because, you know, talk about, we said, you know, the words reusable rocket technology quite a lot on this episode and, and the importance around the cost and what it means. And according to figures I read, NASA at the height of the space race used to spend $95,000-ish for every kilogram it put into space. So astonishingly expensive. And a huge part of that is, of course, as we found out and as we've learned today, um, the rockets would just be discarded and they couldn't be reused. Now, with Elon Musk's SpaceX and their reusable rockets, that figure is estimated at the time of recording now to be only $285 per kilo, to down from 95000 to 285 And people working at SpaceX believe it will eventually be possible to get it as low as $10 a kilo, which, of course, has the effect of just making it so much more egalitarian, so much more affordable, so much more available um, to people who want to be a part of it. And essentially something that can be done over and over and over again. And you can imagine, and it's the same, it's not a big stretch to imagine this because you know, look how cheap a TV is now. 
Now, TVs used to be ridiculously expensive, but now because they're made and, and consumed a lot, the, pro- the cost comes down. It's just an extension of that, really, isn't it? It, it? That's the best analogy I've ever heard, actually, in terms of the TV. You heard it here first, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Luke Moore. But it, it's a great analogy, and it's this idea of launch, land, repeat. Yeah. You know, it's no longer the space shuttle. It, when it didn't fly very often, it had to be refurbished. It, you mm. know, it took a lot of time to prepare it again for another mission. But we want to be going to space more often. And I think it's important to be very clear here that it's not just about sending more people up. It's not about tourists. It's not about wealthy tourists. It's not about sending astronauts up, but it's about sending science up. It's about sending Mm. medical experiments up. You know, for example, we can research how cells in the body grow in microgravity in a Mm. way that we can't do on Earth, which Mm. can help with so many different types of medical research. Cancer research, for example, We we can look back at the Earth and, and find out the situation on Earth um, and, and make decisions, important decisions to everything from flooding to climate change to mm. how we manage the land better because of satellites in orbit around the Earth. Mm. So the more science and more technology we can get to space, but mm. in a, a, an eco-friendly way, in a very conscientious way, the more benefits we can bring to Earth. I know it feels like it's just for this small group of people, these billionaires who don't care about us, but much of the technology, much of the people working in the space industry are doing it because they want to help everyone on Earth. And that's before you get into the idea of this multi-planetary species thing you talked about where, you know, resources on Earth are finite, right, at some point. And we want to be able to be flexible and not so brittle as a, as a species because we want to, if something happens to this home, it's the only home we've got, as Stephen Hawking would say. If you can branch out and get to different places, it obviously makes the future of humanity a lot more sustainable as well by, you know, by definition. So it feels a little bit far off now when Elon Musk says these things about, you know, having a permanent colony on Mars. I mean, ultimately it seems mad now but it won't always seem mad we found out time and time again on these episodes if you wait and if you're patient and things continue at the pace they're currently going at it's not going to be science fiction it's going to be reality and as you say the, the becoming a multi-planetary species they're just you know humans were built to explore we were built to go over that hill and it's it's that innate human curiosity but i would argue most of the stuff we do in space should always be about human life and improving mm. life on earth but we've got to keep moving forward because it's in our dna to do so um but yeah, it just makes me so exciting what's going to come from this technology. But what, what I would say, though, is that there are still some huge hurdles to overcome. And, and one of them, as Livingston Holder explains, is not so much technological, but it's to do with our mindset. It forces us to think differently about how we approach designing and building rockets because we are so used to designing rockets essentially to be thrown away and to put bigger and bigger payloads uh, on them to get more stuff to orbit on a single flight. So we have to kind of readjust our thinking to a life cycle cost of a rocket as opposed to a single cost for a rocket. And as we start to change our mindset to start looking at more reusability uh, of systems, we start to realize the economic benefit of doing so. So our engineering focus changes. And that's the big shift that's going to be required. And the good news is that shift has started. Does it, is it going forward? Is it going to depend a lot on uh, fuel type as well? We need to talk a bit more about fuel type because SpaceX uses liquid oxygen for the most part, right? And then I, I read earlier this year that that was apparently quite in short supply due to the pandemics. It's used in ventilators and that to prioritize with that. And then once up in space, probes have used like plutonium based like radioisotope generators and stuff, which generate heat and power, but that's not being manufactured as much because the cold war's ended so that's potentially another fueling issue i don't know that's what's used for probes or has been used for probes in the past 
what do you know what measures are in place for kind of improvements in fueling and stuff because that's obviously a big part of it as well right yeah i mean you could look at the environmental aspects and at the moment because launches are so infrequent yeah it, it accounts for i wouldn't say negligible or zero but a very teeny tiny part i, I think there are more planes that launch you know yeah. in, in a minute or so yeah. more planes that take off in a minute or so than in space launches within the year but we yeah. need to be mindful of this yeah. um certainly mentioned liquid oxygen most um Liquid rocket engines rely on hydrogen and oxygen. What does hydrogen and oxygen make? Water. water yeah. We know water is prevalent throughout the solar systems yeah. we've spoken um, about before, certainly in frozen form. So the, the idea really is to launch as lightweight as possible, yeah. with as little as possible, and then fuel up on the way. So uh, as we've mentioned previously, think of the moon almost the moon base, yeah, as, yeah, yeah. as being an intergalactic petrol station. But we need to look at all aspects. And one other thing is materials. Um, so lighter, stronger materials. And, and then you'll need less fuel because these materials are lighter, but they're still doing what they're required. So it's an incredible feat of engineering. And I don't pretend to have all the answers, but yeah. it's something that people are working on right now. And it's something which will improve so many lives once we get it right. So I think we've come to the time of the show then, Sarah, where we talk about is it science fact or is it science fiction? I think I know the answer to this already, um, but why don't you let me know? I, I think based on everything, it's happening. I wouldn't mm. say it's science fiction. I wouldn't say it's science fact just yet. Are we, are we straddling the border of both? We are. We are straddling the border because even though we've got um, first stages of rockets which can land and be reused, and we're seeing this with certainly Blue Origin and SpaceX, we're still not reusing rockets fully. But the technology is progressing so fast and change is happening much faster than most people realise. Certainly most, you almost become blinded to it in the space yeah. industry, I think. Um, but, but change is happening. So it will be science fact very, very shortly. And I think it's not just about the benefits um, that will come in terms of science and technology, but it's also the wonder. And I think no one sums this up better than Nicole Stott, who has been to space so many times. I live on the west coast of Florida almost directly across the state from the Kennedy Space Center. And it seems like right now that it's almost every day <laughs> where something is being launched and I'm able to peek out my window and find that little dot of light or trail of smoke moving um, through the sky and, you know, and knowing that something is coming back to Earth that was reusable as part of it as well. Um, I think we're, we're very close to that happening on a, an even more regular basis. And what I think is interesting about that, too, is that's that's going to make the accessibility of getting to space available for more and more people. And it's becoming real to people. And, and hopefully beyond that technical side of it, people are going to learn more and more about the, the true value of why we lift ourselves off this planet anyway. And uh, and that's a really special thing that I, I hope to see happen. This tech that's being developed now, I think, will shine light on, on just the really wonderful value that's coming from us being off the earth um, to improve life on it. I just love Nicole. She's yeah. so incredible. She like, yeah. She's been an aquanaut as well. So she's right. lived under the ocean. She's been an astronaut and she's an artist. And, and I just love that fact that you can be so many things and still be involved in the space industry. And it's great to hear the benefits that are clearly going to be found uh, and, 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 and enjoyed by all this stuff that's happening. And it's really romantic well that she put it as well. So it's almost like if you want all the fun stuff and all the important stuff and all the good stuff, sometimes you just need to get the basics right. Yeah. And this is one of those examples where, look, let's get this bit squared away. It'll become like second nature in however many years' time. We need it. It's the baseline for everything we want to achieve. Sometimes you've got to pay attention to the basics. You've got to build a good foundation for your house. It ain't just all about picking the curtains. Look, we're not quite in science fact yet, but we can see it from here.
Thanks for listening to today's episode. Join us next week as we pack one seven-month, 300-million-mile trip into a single episode. That's right, we're asking, where's my Mars visit? Where's My Jetpack is a stack production presented by me, Sarah Credis, and Luke Moore. The production team is Charlie Morgan, Luke Moore, and Sarah Credis. Our sound designer and editor is Tom Wally. Special thanks to our guests, Nicole Stott and Livingston Holder. If you like this show, please subscribe and rate wherever you listen to your podcast. It really does make a massive difference. And you can also follow Luke and I on Twitter. We're at Sarah Credis and at Luke Aaron Moore. Where's My Jetpack is a stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.